You're listening to the Tuesday Talks Podcast, your source of truth in communications, identity management, and technology. This week's episode is co-hosted by Numerical's VP of Trust Solutions, Sarah Delphi, and Dr. Bradley Reeves, Associate Professor in the Department of Computer Science at North Carolina State University and member of the Wolfpack Security and Privacy Research Lab. Together, they'll delve deep into the underpinnings of SMS phishing, exploring the latest research and shedding light on the mechanisms behind these attacks. Hi, welcome to Tuesday Talks, a live discussion series where we bring truth and shed light across the brand identity and communications industry. I'm Sarah Delphi. I am the VP of Trust Solutions at Numerical. And today I am joined by Dr. Brad Reeves. He is an associate professor in the Department of uh, Computer Science at North Carolina State University. He is also a member of the Wolfpack Security and Privacy Research Lab. So welcome back. Good to have you again and get to talk to you again, Brad. Thanks. Um, uh, this was a blast last time I did it. Um, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Yeah. And so just to get right into it, um, you've had, I, it was really great to see you at Zipnock and participating on some of our ads events too. Love to see you getting to uh, rub elbows and share your ideas and your team's knowledge as well with uh, the telecom industry. And I have heard that you have a new set of research out and I would love to talk to you more about it. Could you tell me just kind of at a high level, uh, what was the initial goal when you set out in this particular research? What was prior to, to, to putting the paper out? What were you hoping to achieve? So this was, um, this was a project that, um, is, uh, I, honestly, it's been a couple of years in the making, but the, the ultimate research question was, um, What's the deal with uh, phishing over text messaging? Um, and so um, you know, we were asking questions like, uh, you know, how common is it? How can we get data on the problem? Are things that we know about the web actually going to be useful in understanding and combating uh, SMS phishing? Um, and the very short answer is yes. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I, and I think there's a lot more focus on SMS phishing than there used to be uh, at the, I was at the CFCA conference last week and I, there was just a huge amount of discussion about SMS phishing and in particular, a lot of financial institutions were in attendance talking about uh, phishing or smishing on SMS uh, attacks that their, their customers were receiving and in a lot of cases paying out huge amounts to these fraudsters and just the the level of complication and sophistication that was at least talked about in some of those communications fraud circles um, was crazy. So what, what what did you look at or what did you find? Yeah, um, so um, uh, you know, it seems like it's getting, so just anecdotally, it seemed like it is, it is getting worse. Um, and, you know, as a security professional, I often have time, a difficult time when a text message comes in and actually determining if it's phishing, it's a lot harder with SMS. And so, um, I think that that probably motivates why we're seeing more of it. Um, in this particular study, Go ahead. Just that in there for anybody. I always like to on these for anybody who's not in the know in the telecom space. Um, you know, most consumers know just based on how it comes in. But FYI, when for SMS, right, 
there is no caller ID. As much as we talk about and have talked about, please see prior episodes of Tuesday Talks for lots more information or the Miracles website. Uh, call A lot of the call presentation that you see today may or may not be verified or accurate. But even worse, in text messaging, there is no such thing. You just get a phone number, whether it is a Home Depot that's contacting you or your doctor's office or a scammer. It's all just a number and you don't get any additional contextual information that comes through. So that's one of the reasons why SMS phishing is so popular. It's also very cheap and easy to put out at scale and programmatically. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very difficult for consumers, even for me sometimes, to tell what's real and what's not when it comes to SMS. Yeah, it is. Um, it certainly can be tricky. Um, so I just saw that um, Sarah posted in the chat a, a link to um, our our work on uh, SMS phishing. So this is um, a brand new paper, hot off the metaphorical presses. Um, it went up um, an hour ago, so it's uh, um, brand new, at least uh, at least to the public. Um, so um, um, to as an intro to yeah. what that kind of what what that paper is about, um, we started with about two and a half million uh, text messages, uh, whittled it down to about sixty eight thousand messages that we determined were phishing um, by um, using one of a few oracles, uh, and. Uh, from that, we were able to identify 35,000 campaigns. So um, this is where we see a bunch, uh, several messages that are basically the same text, the same script. Uh, and um, we were able to even go further uh, to identify related campaigns. And the way that we do that is that we start looking at the infrastructure that the fishers are using. Um, one of the things that is, from a defense perspective, is really, really nice about SMS phishing is that um, with you know, the romance scams aside, pretty much everything else is, um, it's about getting you to click a link. And once you have a link, um, we know a lot about how to deal with bad stuff on the web. Uh, and. Um, and that's actually what we did with this work. I worked with a couple of colleagues who are experts in web security and phishing um, to do this. So I think your your sourcing of your data set for this one was a little bit unique. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so normally, um, so uh, I think what now is on, uh, on uh, Tuesday Talks last time was talking about um, our work running a voice honeypot. Um, this is a little bit uh, of a different source of data, though. Um, so um, I imagine some folks uh, on listening are probably familiar with these websites, but if you aren't, there's a um, sort of a, a cottage industry of, of websites and they show ads and the way that they work is um, they get you to visit them by providing a phone number that anyone can text and the messages will be displayed on the website. Um, and if you're wondering what, why anybody would want to do that, they, you know, they say it's, oh, well, if your phone dies, or um, one website I saw said uh, it's the number you give to your ex-partner when you don't want to give them your real number. 
Um, but in practice, almost every, almost all of the messages are used um, for um, to evade phone verified account uh, auditing or um, or some other abuse purpose. Yeah, and when you first mentioned these, this particular set of uh, this cottage industry, I got so excited because. I thought, you know, you were the first person I had ever talked to in a very long time that knew about this. And back when I was working uh, for a carrier, looking at fraud and abuse of use of numbers for that carrier, stumbled across these web pages and spent a whole lot of time trying to get that carrier's numbers taken down off of these pages. But I don't, I, I don't think it's very widely known. Um, but you were able to use that text message content? Yeah. Um, and so we were looking at, um, uh, I think, 10 or 12 of these services. Um, and actually, this is not the first time I've used data like this. Um, I actually discovered um, these websites myself around 2015 um, when I was doing some research on um, the security of financial services in developing countries, and a lot of them rely on SMS for various pieces of their functionality. And so, you know, I was trying to get an SMS delivered to me in India uh, and, um, you know, from the United States, that's pretty hard. Um, and so the, I actually found these websites because I was, you know, I needed, a, you know, just a message delivered. Uh, but I started to look at them and I said, you know, there, there's a ton happening here and we need to, we should take a look at this. Um, and so um, in a paper that was published um, back in 2016, we actually studied these services in particular um, to understand what they're up to, what they're used for. Uh, and we had some uh, pretty damning proof that um, you know, almost all of the behavior is driven by phone verified account um, creation. Uh, um, but there, that's not all that's there. Um, there is, uh, there's also um, some two-factor messaging, you know, two-factor authentication messages uh, that um, are probably related to the phone verified accounts. Um, and so one of the things that we were able to do with that was we could actually look, um, and we had so much data, we could actually tell if uh, people were using good random number generators or not for their 2FA tokens. And so um, when you talk about the tokens, that's, you know, I get a code that says input this uh, two, four, five, six, seven uh, to, to authenticate your account. And, and normally folks use random number generators, but you were able to detect a pattern in those? Yeah, um, so um, we looked at a handful of the, I think probably 10 or 20 services, something like that. Um, and most were doing it right. Um, and in fact, you know, nowadays the libraries are good enough that um, it's pretty easy to do it right by default. Um, but there were a few services that were using a tiny fraction of the available space. So if you've got a six digit code, you think you've got you know, basically a one in a million chance of guessing it. Um, but if you only use 10,000 codes and you get 10,000 opportunities to try, well, eventually you're going to get in. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I wouldn't have even thought to look for that kind of a pattern. Um, uh, but that's really fascinating. And I, I'm sure a lot of folks that use two factor authentication messages 
could really probably use another look um, at those would be very interested in your findings. Um, but that it did surprise me to know the amount of phishing messages that these numbers were receiving because they're they're not in service to a subscriber, although this as you saw, there's plenty of activity on them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, so when I did the study back in 2016, one of the things that we were that we went and looked for was you know spam and other kinds of messages, um, and phishing in particular. And I think in in that data set, which was smaller but pretty similar to what we're what we're looking at, uh, I think we found one phishing campaign. One. Um, and I remember it because it was uh, it was actually an iCloud phishing campaign. Um, uh, we have a I think we even have a screenshot in the paper. Um, but, um, you know, it was really special and unique. Um, when we started doing this work and we started crawling these um, SMS services again, um, I was initially a little bit skeptical about how much data we would find because we didn't find a whole lot last time. And boy, was I wrong. Um, you know, we went from basically one to, um, you know, uh, nearly, uh, actually 35,000 different campaigns. So, um, you know, uh, we're, this is a, a much better data source for understanding phishing than it once was. I'm a little bit hesitant to say that this is proof that the problem is getting worse because, you know, the way we sample things is different. Um, detection is better as well, but um, I can definitely say it's a much better source of data than it was eight years ago. For whatever reason, yeah. Well, 35,000 campaigns, how did you group, how did you identify something as a particular campaign? Yeah, so um, what we did, um, and uh, this technique is um, due to the um, the PhD student who actually led this work, um, Alexander Nahapetchan. He's uh, actually in the um, in the audience right now. Um, so um, he spent a lot of time looking at these and realized that they they tend to come in patterns um, where almost the entire message is the same except for. Uh, essentially a variable, and that variable could be um, a one-time password code, it could be a URL, um, occasionally it's something like uh, a name, but those are those are a lot less common. And, and so you can effectively look at, um, uh, you can effectively look for those things that are commonly variables, like numbers, and um, if you replace them with something static, then you can look at the, um, you know, at very similar messages and, and group them together uh, with really high confidence that they are all um, part of the same campaign. Yeah, and that's um, something we would do as well on the SMS fraud mitigation days and something that you have to do because the content variation, the programmatic content variation that these fraudsters use or spammers even, it's not just those that are looking to commit fraud, it's sometimes even legitimate marketing offers that are looking to, you know, just get around spam labels will vary content uh, in order to avoid detection as being associated with a similar campaign. I, I love that there are those who have put together the tools to try and group those together, um, because it's, if not, we just always have to stay one step ahead. But was there anything, uh, anything surprising that came out of when you looked at the actual campaigns themselves? Because you've seen a lot of SMS phishing, I'm sure, over the years. 
Uh, yeah, um, you know, as as a researcher and as uh, as as a target. Um, so we um, we saw um, a number of things as we started to look through the data. Um, so um, one of them was that um, we um, we saw a lot of the um, the common stuff that you you know about anecdotally. Um, and so this is, um, um, Alex is actually reminding me of uh, some of the more interesting stuff we found. Um, so, you know, the things that you might see on blog posts about, oh, this is SMS phishing. So uh, the Postal Service, FedEx, UPS, iCloud, um, some of the more exotic stuff we saw, um, some cryptocurrency phishing attacks. Um, those were pretty rare. I think we only saw a handful of campaigns like that. Uh, but um, on the whole, we were definitely seeing the usual suspects. Um, so um, what what was, I think, a little bit more interesting is that um, we can go beyond the content of these messages um, and actually start to look at their infrastructure, especially their, their web presence. Um, and as soon as you get a URL, there is um, there are a ton of tools that are available to you. Um, so you know, the first of them is um, just detection services that um, let you know if, you know, does this look like phishing? Has it, um, you know, has it appeared in a blacklist before? Um, but you can also look at more fundamental network data. Um, so, um, for example, you can look at the domain and when it was registered. Um, you can look at, um, um, you can also, of course, you know, go to the website and, and see what it is that they're actually doing. And um, one of the things that we were able to find was that, um, was that, uh, there's evidence that some of these phishing campaigns are reusing sort of uh, phishing templates, phishing kits um, from traditional phishing that you would see in email. So um, you know, there's a good bit of overlap once you get onto the web and how these things operate. What is a, for those who don't know, what's a phishing kit? So a phishing kit, um, so um, if you think of SMS Phishing, um, you know, it's um, you know, it's a it's a black market activity, uh, and it turns out that when you start, um, you know, when you start looking at a black market, especially one that is you know fairly large and fairly practiced, um, you start to see some business diversification. So um, what you may find is that um, you know you've got the people who are running the the campaigns who are actually figuring out how to send the messages. Um, you've got the people who are facilitating the abusive messages, and that's something that I think our the audience here probably thinks a lot about. Um, but um, there's also, um, you know, business services. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, there are folks who don't run the phishing campaigns themselves, but what they do is they make the phishing pages and then they sell sell packages to would-be fishers so that you don't have to start from scratch yourself. Um, and, um, and the way that we actually figure this out is that sometimes they leave the um, uh, bits of the template on the website themselves. And if you know how to look for them, you can actually find 
um, the whole kit um, that they've just kind of left there. I mean, it makes total sense, right? I've, in looking at a lot of fraud over the years, you see patterns. You don't necessarily have all the data to be able to do that at scale, but you start to go, wait, this looks familiar. Wait, this content looks familiar. Wait, hold on. Um, and it's like anything else, right? It's a business. Why would anyone make all of that from scratch when you can just buy something that works just fine? Um, so that's fascinating, yeah, to be able to detect that behind those. So relative to the number of campaigns that you, you found, how many actors did you find? So we were able to, um, what we did was we started to look at the campaigns and all of the, um, and the URLs that were that were used in each. And what we did was we would um, start with a message and then work towards the infrastructure. Uh, and then we would look at any other campaigns that happened to use that same infrastructure. And by that, I mean either domain names or IP addresses. Uh, and so that would let us link other campaigns and then uh, because a campaign might have multiple different internet properties, we could continue, uh, you know, hopping along the path until we uh, we map out a lot of this infrastructure. Um, so the um, the thing is, you know, I, this is a, a fantastic data source for research. Yeah. But it is a tiny, tiny pinhole into the overall phenomenon. So um, we uh, so what we see is effectively a lower bound, uh, and. Um, we set, we found, I think, um, looking for the number here to make sure I don't lie. Um, we wouldn't know, but I appreciate you looking it up nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so, um, we actually found, uh, around 650, um, uh, operations that were operating multiple campaigns over the course of basically a year is the, the scope of the data that we were looking at. Yeah, and that's you know um, and, just distinctive. But could those some of those potentially be related with one another? And so I think of you know different if from a business perspective, right? I might run one set of things over here and one, then launch a net new product over here. Yeah. Yeah. So if um, if you if the fishers are careful and never reuse infrastructure, we would you know we would say oh well. You know, that's two campaigns instead of being able to link them together. Right. Um, and there's also the fact that we only see a tiny, tiny fraction of these messages. And so um, we could be, we likely are missing a lot of, a lot of links that um, other folks, um, you know, especially folks at, at providers might actually be able to see. Yeah, what comes to um, mind is, you know, a spear phishing campaign where it's really targeted at a particular individual versus a larger set of, you know, phishing that's just going to a wide variety of people. Like I get a USPS phishing that's just a general thing. I get one every single day and then it gets filtered to, to from Google into my spam set. But yeah, it, it, I imagine you probably don't see as many of those, but Frankly, the industry as a whole doesn't see as many of those because there just is less volume of that kind of spear phishing messaging, which is which is difficult um, to detect. 
Yeah, it, it really is. Um, and um, and you're right that that probably is something that we don't have a great window into with this particular data set. Um, but this particular data set does have some um, really interesting advantages that um, probably no other data set has. Um, and so um, this is probably my favorite finding that um, uh, I told you we could look at the, the domain names and other public records to kind of find out how long the activity was. Um, one of the things that we looked at was the lifetime of the, the TLS certificate. So this is the um, certificate that says that a particular website um, operating uh, is actually that particular website and it's what gives you that you know nice little lock in your in your browser um, and it turns out that um, there's a, a these used to be expensive but um, nowadays there are uh, free certificate authorities that issue them um, which has overall been a boon for the security of the internet but um, you know the bad guys get to use it too um, but the the upshot is that um, the main one that that folks use called it's called Let's Encrypt. Um, they have a practice um, called certificate transparency. And the, the basic idea is that if they issue a certificate for a domain, they um, they actually publish it uh, in a public register, and so anybody can see. And uh, you know, if you happen to operate a domain, you can watch the certificate transparency logs and make sure nobody else is registering a certificate for your property. Um, but you also get um, a great window into knowing when exactly these, um, when exactly a domain is being spun up and when it's actually being deployed. Uh, and one of the things that we saw was that we were seeing uh, SMS campaigns that, um, that where we had messages, hours, uh, or potentially I think um, you know up to two days earlier than the certificate was issued. Um, so tell me that again. So the message content was being sent ahead of this actual certificate being issued for that domain. Right, and that's not something that as a fisher you would want to do because what would happen is that the your victim would click the link and their browser would warn them that it's insecure. Um, one reason that you might do that, though, is if you are using these services to test your your scripts and your spamming infrastructure before you um, you actually deploy it to you know tens or hundreds of thousands because you want to make sure that the URL is going to appear and it's going to show up right and that it goes to the right place. Um, and so um, that's. Um, we have um, some corroborating pieces of evidence that we describe in the paper as well. Um, but um, the upshot is that um, if you're watching these um, free um, SMS messaging websites, um, you know, the, the fishers are using them to, to test their infrastructure too. And, um, and you can actually see them before you would ever see one of their messages hit a customer. Who's that's, I mean, that's enormous, right? This, this is a public data set. Um, obviously, it's it's not, you know, a nice, easily packaged data set. This is a whole series of websites that you, you've had to put the data together for. But to say that back is, you know, 
fraudsters are using these numbers to test phishing campaigns because they're free and they're available and they're on various networks. So usually they publish the network that's associated with it. And so, you know, you're seeing that pre-activity before they go live and potentially getting insight into, okay, what's the next phishing domain that these folks are going to use or template? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, um, that was the thing that probably, that was most exciting to me is that, um, not only can we see these folks, we can see them, we can see them before they can hurt anybody. So exciting. And, you know, I, I, I kind of feel the same way as you is, you know, as in the, in fraud world, it's well, you know, if we shut this down or if they discover that this, this angle, if, if folks are using it, which they absolutely should, I hope everyone reaches out to you from SMS fraud world and, and wants to work with you and gets access to some of this data, um, to be able to implement this. And of course, you know, that the argument is that people will migrate. Well, good, right? The more that we can do to cut off access. And to me, it's a win-win because these websites have been a thorn in my side for literally like five to 10 years now. <laughs> so anything I can do to make them less useful to people, uh, is, is that's also a win for me too. These fly by night organizations, I have no issue using their data. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, I've, I've gotten a lot of value from these websites over the years. Um, uh, personally, because I'm able to write papers about what they do and how they help bad people. Yeah. Um, uh, it's super, so, I, I realize we're unfortunately almost at time, but I did want to give you, can you, uh, where can folks go who may be listening and not here live to, to find your research? Yeah. Um, so, um, um, you can find us at, uh, at our outreach website, uh, and that's robocall.science. Um, and that's the full domain. Science is actually a thing now. Uh, and, uh, and so you can find all of our, our published papers there, including this most recent one on, on SMS abuse. Um, we have a mailing list that um, is it's low volume, but we let people know when we're when we put up something new. So there'll be a, a mailing list message um, probably in the next day or so to announce this new paper and this Tuesday talks episode. Uh, and um, there's lots more coming um, uh, beyond that. Like um, we actually finally got um, permission to release some source code, so that'll be up in the next little bit. That's awesome. I, you know, I could talk to you about this all day long and I'm so excited for what you and your team are producing um, and really excited for you to be able to share it with everybody. So please go to robocall.science and uh, we will definitely have you back on the podcast again. So please join us uh, and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and we'd like to thank all of you for joining us for another episode of Tuesday Talks. Our next live episode will be Tuesday, November 14th where we will have Numerical's VP of Engineering for Voice, Brett Nemiroff, and fellow SIP expert, Mark Lindsay, Vice President and Senior Member of the Technical Staff at ECG. They will be discussing the potential and pitfalls of one of our favorite subjects, truly, here at Numerical, Stir Shaken. Guys, let's take a Stir Shaken. Come back, we have more content for you. It's not going away. Be sure to register and tune in live. And just thank you again, Brad. It is always wonderful to talk to you. And thank you to all of you who joined us today. And online. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Tuesday Talks. Our next live episode will be on Tuesday, November 14th with Numerical's VP of Engineering for Voice, Brett Nemiroff, and fellow SIP expert, 
Mark Quincy, VP and Senior Member of the Technical Staff at ECG. They will be discussing the potential and pitfalls of one of our favorite subjects here at Numerical, Stir Shaken. So join us in our mission to promote transparency and collaboration to return trust to communications. Simply click the link to register and join us at the live show. Invite a friend and be sure to submit a question you'd like to have answered live.